VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? They still believe it. They just need to have their noses rubbed in the ways that they're not doing that anymore. And, and it's really hard to know whether they are head in the sand or in denial. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I'm your host, Danny Fortson, the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. We have a great show for you this week. Tim O'Reilly is here, uh, and he is one of the leading thinkers out here in Silicon Valley. He's also the founder of O'Reilly Media, and for decades, he's just shown a real, uh, quite astounding knack for kind of seeing where things are in the tech world and where they're going. And naming them. Um, so terms like open source software, web 2.0, they can all be traced back to him. And now Tim is noodling around with another concept that we could soon become also very familiar with, and that is algorithmic rent. And this is really just a way to frame how the big tech companies operate. They are, through this lens, landlords. And they're extracting rent from us, from their suppliers, you know, small companies, etc. And one way or another, through the use of their algorithms, which of course funnel what we see, what we are served, what we don't see, and who benefits from that. So it's an interesting concept, and not least because Google, of course, is being sued by the government. Facebook is supposedly within days going to be hit with a separate suit. Amazon and Apple are still under investigation. So in other words, the landlords of the internet are under growing pressure. But what's interesting is that there's very little clarity about how best to really unwind some of their worst impulses to break their stranglehold, which brings us back to O'Reilly and how he's thinking about and naming this dynamic that has developed. And hopefully from that, it will help in some way to generate some smarter thinking and some more focused responses to get us all back to a better place. That's the idea anyway. So we're going to get to that right now. But just before we do that, one other thing, a programming note. For Christmas, I'll be taking a two-week hiatus. So over Christmas and New Year weeks. But I don't think you'll miss me that much because you're going to be, well, maybe you'll just be hanging out with your immediate family. So maybe you really will need a podcast. In that case, I'm sorry. Um, but I'm going to take a little break, which amazingly I think will be the first of this year. Um, wow. But we want to give you a heads up on that. But until then, we will be churning out the pod and next week, we have a very fun one. It has to do with hallucinogenics. So keep an eye out for that one. You'll like it. And you're going to really like Tim O'Reilly. So here he is, Tim O'Reilly. Enjoy. 
I wanted to talk to you because I, I came across in my meanderings on Twitter this term algorithmic rent and then saw that you were working with UCL looking into this concept and how we should think about regulating technologies that are extracting algorithmic rent, et cetera. And it just, it feels very apropos, not least because we just had the Google antitrust case and it appears Facebook is about to get hit as well with a suit. But before we kind of dive into that, I just thought it would be worth covering off a very basic question. What, when you say algorithmic rent, what do you mean? Yeah, well, first of all, I was talking about this for quite some time before uh, I was meeting with Mariana and she started talking about rents and, and she talked about it in, in her books. And I went, oh, that's what it is. It basically, uh, you know, a rent is, you know, additional unearned income that you get from control over a resource. And so when you think about search in particular, whether it's Google search or, or Amazon search, the control over the algorithm, like what you show people, is a sort of locus of, of rent, just like the, the castle in the past, where you basically mm. made every trader give you a, you know, pay, pay a toll or, or a bridge. Uh, you know, these were all rents. And, you know, in, in some sense, you could say, well, it's earned because you have control over the resource, but it's, it's not earned in the sense that it actually does anything productive. What I had been doing and looking at for some time, and now a little bit more formally, I, I actually, as Marianne and I started talking about it, we actually got a grant to, uh, to, to study it a little bit more deeply and hire a research assistant so that the things that I've kind of done on the back of a napkin could be formalized. And, yeah. But what I've mainly been looking at is this notion that both Google and Amazon in particular, but I think it's also true in uh, with Apple and the App Store, with the Android App Store, but it's pretty obvious already with, with Google Search and with, with Amazon. And I've written about it a little bit over the last couple of years, like in the, in the piece I, I wrote criticizing Reid Hoffman's blitzscaling idea. Originally, and this is very relevant to this Tim Wu, because uh, Tim and I see very much eye, eye to eye on this. He's, he's saying, look, you know, Ben uh, Thompson's aggregation theory kind of seems yeah. to imply that the dominance is totally because they do these, this great service and it's sort of like this perpetual motion machine. People use Google because they like it, because it provides value to them. And that may be true, but the, the, the heart of the antitrust case is that they, once they got in that position, uh, they started changing their behavior. And I think back to the early days when I was talking about Web 2.0 and collective intelligence, and you, you saw that Google and Amazon both were demonstrating this idea that you would harness all the signals that were coming from your users to come up with the best mm. result. And if you look at both Google and Amazon today, they are effectively extracting rents. Amazon no longer shows you the best product. In fact, that's not even a search option. It, you know, again, it used to be the default on Amazon. The default search result was the thing that all of the factors said made the product the best. It was kind of an unadulterated, this is the result that you are looking for. That, that's right. And now the dominant result is featured. That's the default, which means that you paid us to put it first or we decided for you know reasons uh, of our own that we would put it first. And often it might be an Amazon product. It might be a product that makes them more money. And uh, in the case of Google, you know, you used to think about the, the 10 blue links and there was yeah. all this amazing work, you know, where it's like, hey, they click on the third link. So maybe, you know, or, you know, the idea of the long click versus the short click, uh, all these signals that we're saying, what do people really think is best? And now the organic links, you often will get only one link 
barely visible at the bottom of the page. On mobile, it may be on the, the second or the third page of results because what's at the top? Uh, Google's own products and ads. And so in each case, they ended up in this very sweet spot where people were choosing them because of their best results. But at this point, the, the choices that they're making for what to show you are what benefits them. And you see this in, in an area like uh, something that you very often will find quite puzzling. Somebody has the top organic search result and right above it, they are also advertising for their own name. Well, why is that? Because if they don't, someone else will. And that Google will effectively is effectively then saying, well, you know, guess what? You know, hey, if somebody wants to come find O'Reilly Media and uh, you don't advertise, well, we'll just have to show them your competitor because they'll pay us for that spot. And that's kind of a protection right. racket. The term algorithmic rents is, is sort of probably a little too narrow in the sense that they're really design rents as well, mm. you know, because it, it, what really gives them this optionality is that they're showing this tiny window onto this massive information space. And so it's the set of features by which they manage your perception of what's there. And managing my perception or your perception to their benefit. That's right. In one way or another. You know, and I think the same thing is true of Facebook in a, in a very, very different way. And I do think that we as a society have not really come to grips with what we're asking of these companies. So I really want to get to that. But if you could just talk about how you see this concept, how Facebook applies it, because you say it's in a different way and then we can get to Because I think it's that question of, okay, so now what, I think is the question. And it feels like nobody has the answer and there's a lot of hand-waving and a lot of ink being spilled by regulators, by lawyers, et cetera. And it's not really clear, you know, how this shakes out or what the kind of right direction is or the most effective way to approach it. Personally, I'm not, I mean, there's a set of antitrust issues for sure in the case of Amazon and Google, very traditional antitrust. I, well, there's antitrust issues with Facebook as well, you know, buying potential competitors and all those kind of things. But in this algorithmic context, I almost think that the more important lens than, than antitrust may well be FTC kind of enforcement of mm. consumer fraud in some sense, you know, where you basically, you know, in the case of Facebook, it's pretty obvious you're, you're offering people misinformation because it makes you more money. And I do think that our society has been very, very unclear about what we're asking of these companies. Yeah, you know, I think we'll look back and we'll say, wow, do you remember that controversy when Facebook did this experiment and they could make people happier by showing them happier, you know, <laughs> stories in their newsfeed? And it was this huge uproar that it was a breach of research ethics to be experimenting on people. But it's not a breach of research ethics to experiment on people to make more money. Because that's, of course, what the companies were doing all the time, which every, right. you know, every Silicon Valley company was doing uh, growth marketing. You know, so we have this idea that somehow you know, manipulation for profit is cool. Any other kind of manipulation is bad. And, and, and that says something pretty profound about what's wrong with capitalism, when basically you can go as far as fraud. You know, it is a kind of fraud. You know, think about all the, the link bait kind of content that, mm. you know, you, it's a kind of deceptive advertising. Somebody says, here's a story about something and you get there and it isn't really about that. And would it, would, does that extend to, say, for example, thinking about the Google example of like, okay, I'm looking for whatever, bed sheets. 
And then there's the whole list of kind of paid for ads and then maybe some link to something else. Oh, a- absolutely. Because Google, you, you know, in, in old school Google, it was pretty clear what was an ad and what wasn't. And increasingly it's, yeah, it still says ad, but they all look the yeah. same. Just this morning, I was trying to make a donation to the Alameda Community Food Bank and I search Alameda Community Food Bank. And it used to be that, you know, Google just basically would go, oh, I know how to give you that. And they would take you right there. That doesn't happen anymore. I got there and I click on the top link because I'm just in a hurry. And I go, oh, why am I on the San Francisco Marin Food Bank? Oh, because it turns out there was an ad, you know, and they had placed their link above the thing I was looking for. And Google let them do it. So is that fraud, though, or is Google just become a kind of new version of the yellow pages. Yeah, that one's not fraud, but I do think that if you contrast it with the old behavior of Google, mm. it's a kind of rent seeking. Yeah. You know, it's like we promised to give you something, we trained you to trust us uh, that we would give you that, and now we're giving you something else. Well, it's really interesting. I was doing a, I'm doing a, a piece on Amazon this week. And I was talking to an analyst and he's like, you know, oftentimes Amazon trained us to believe that whatever you found on Amazon is going to be the cheapest. That is no longer the case in a lot of cases because it's kind of been burned into your brain that, okay, if you want to get something cheap, go to Amazon and then you don't look anywhere else. And especially if you have Prime now, you're not even going to really be incentivized to look elsewhere because it's going to get there in, you know, six hours. But again, it's, it's, a, it's quite subtle. It's not, they're not saying this is the cheapest, but we've kind of been trained And then in the intervening years, the rules have changed. That's right. And I think that the reason why the concept of rents is important, and obviously Mariana can speak far more to this uh, because it is a fundamental concept in economics that she spent a lot of time on. It is that if we believe in the market system, yes, we believe there are information asymmetries, but, you know, free market theory says it only works when there is symmetric information. You know, that's when you get a truly efficient market. And so the fact that the platforms and the aggregators or whatever you want to call them have control over what their customers can see, and mm. they use that to extract additional benefit from their suppliers is basically making the market a lot less efficient. You know, like if they, yeah. were, if they were fair players, then it would allow the buyers and sellers to find each other and for the people with the best price, the best quality. I mean, you know, in so many ways in its heyday, Google was this incredible advance on free market theory. You know, and I used to talk about it and I still do. You know, if you think about this idea that Google search was this market without money, you know, because mm. the, the money side, the advertising was literally, literally off to the side. Price played no role in the, in the matching marketplace of information seekers and information providers. It was like, hey, I'm looking for this thing. And they had hundreds of signals to say, this is the thing you're looking for. And then they, they kind of piggybacked a paid information market or a paid market on top of that. But that wasn't good enough. And then they started saying, well, we're just going to kind of start to mingle the two. And that market is considerably less efficient today. You know, and it's everything from... You know, like I'm looking for information on travel, you know, for example, you know, TripAdvisor, an aggregator uh, themselves, but they were crowdsourcing lots of content from, you know, millions of consumers, reviews and and so on. And they would typically come up at the top of uh, Google results. And that was a pretty good advance in market information and market symmetry. And then Google Google comes along and says, well, we're going to do one of those, too. 
they pin their results to the top of the research results without having to go through any of the signals that they use to determine the best result. It hasn't been there a long time. It hasn't been voted up by users linking to it. And of course, if Yelp and TripAdvisor to, to be believed, they also basically don't edit spam out of their reviews. So they'll have lots of them. You know, so basically they've gone way backwards. And so the right. fact that they're putting their own inferior product first and driving down the better product which they can do because they control both the presentation layer, uh, you know, design and also the algorithm by which uh, results get surfaced. That is basically a kind of rent extraction and rent extraction is a fundamental way of making a market less efficient. Before we get to the kind of, okay, now what question, which I think, again, I think is the very important one. Can we just talk quickly about Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose, IIPP? So if you just talk about what that is and what you the work you guys are doing there or kind of how you, this kind of came about and also the funding because I think it's you're funded from the by the Omidyar network correct Yeah and and I believe there's some funding from Rockefeller too uh, Right but I think Omidyar is particularly an interesting kind of person in all of this Yeah uh, because I think Pierre is one of those people who kind of believed in the original promise of the internet and didn't sell out you know, and, and also kind of stepped aside from that. And so he was able to. And for those who don't know, probably everybody listening to this podcast knows he founded eBay way, what, 95 or something? Way, many, oh, many moons ago. A little before ago. that. Yeah, 94, yeah. I think. Yeah, it was before Amazon. Oh, actually, I, I, actually, when was eBay founded? No, 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 you're right. It's 95. So it actually is, uh, 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 it is actually about nine months after Amazon. Right. Anyway, so back to how this came about. Mariana and I had become acquainted. I was and Mariana Matsukato. Matsukato, right? yes. So, in a lot of ways, this whole study of rents is a a sub theme of what IAPP is focused on. Mostly, they're on the public purpose part of this thing, you know, i.e., mission driven government. And some of this right. comes out of Mariana's original work with with books like uh, the Entrepreneurial State. You know, the the fact that government just doesn't get credit for driving forward innovation. And IIPP does a lot of work consulting with governments on how to participate in the entrepreneurial economy. But as a part of that work, Mariana came to recognize that one of the things that was happening was the government was spending a whole lot of money. And then uh, the companies that benefited from that government's funding, say pharma companies, uh, was is one of their particular targets, were basically getting a whole lot of rents. You know, they were basically getting uh, you know patents on stuff that was paid for with public money, and then charging super high prices. You know, right. like there's something wrong with this picture. So, in some sense, uh, you know, rents are a part of the thing that damages the relationship between government and, and innovation and the innovation economy because. It is a kind of capture of that public purpose by, you know, again, companies that do rent seeking. And, and of course, regulatory capture is sort of a, a term that gets used and regulatory capture is one kind of rent seeking. But, but anyway, so I had read Mariana's second book, uh, The Value of Everything, and she started talking a little bit about rents there. We'd met at a number of events and we just started talking about the work I was doing where I had just started, you know, looking at changes over time, again, which I've written about, not in a really formal way, but just as a way of kind of illustrating where I thought Silicon Valley was going wrong. And uh, 
I started to document some of this, you know, here's the divergence, you know, here Google used to serve both sides of its market, both its users and its suppliers, i.e. websites. And increasingly, websites have been, get, been getting the short end of the stick. You know, Amazon was really serving both uh, its suppliers and its consumers. Increasingly, the suppliers are getting the short end of the stick and, and starting to say, well, how would we document that? And then when I was talking with Mariana one time, we, I just realized that this uh, idea of rents was a great lens to get uh, real economic thinking going around this. And Yeah, well, because it, it, it conjures the image of a landlord and not a good one. That's, that's exactly right. And so what I had started to do was to look at changes in behavior by Google and Amazon over the years. You know, like, and, and unfortunately, I, you know, if, if I had thought of it at the time and had sort of been tracking things, you know, it would be a lot easier. But you're trying to go backwards and say, well, uh, let's do some archaeology, see what we can find. So, for example, I found a Dutch SEO consultant who'd actually had pictures of the changing you know, from 2011 through 2015 or so of how Google changed its its presentation of search results. And you go, okay, can we now correlate that data with changes in their financial results? And this fundamental question of economics, who gets what and why? So what I'm trying to do is, is sort of spelunking through the financial statements and the various things in there uh, that I have probably not as deep an understanding of that I wish I had where I go, okay, well, look, for example, in 2004, when Google went public, you know, AdWords and AdSense, i.e. advertising that they placed on, on other people's websites versus mm. on their own, were about each about 50% of their revenue. And you see the divergence over time where the revenue on their own properties has just grown so much faster. You mm. know, and you, you go, okay, so effectively the web providers are getting less and less of that. Now, when I've talked with Hal Varian about this, he's kind of said, well, we actually pay a lot in traffic acquisition you know, uh, costs. You have to take that into account. But those are things like that's not actually to web content providers. That's typically uh, you know, to people like Apple. Yeah, paying $12 billion a year to Apple. Yeah. So I don't really think of that as really going to the people who were producing the content. And, and I've thought about this a lot mm. because of my own business, because we're also an aggregator, uh, though at a much smaller scale. And this is where, for me, it's intersected with antitrust. Because we are not a monopoly, we have to take care of our supplier side. Because if right. we don't, they'll go somewhere else. So I kind of started uh, articulating a theory in my own mind, which I talked about with Tim Wu, and he thought seemed to think was pretty interesting, was that this is an interesting test of if you're a monopoly. Do you have to take care of your supplier side at all? If you don't have to you know, make sure that your suppliers are taken care of, then you have too much power. And whether it's technically a monopoly, you can still say you, they have too much power. And, and so the fact that Google and Amazon have turned on their suppliers and I've long done that. I mean, Amazon, think about some of their things o o over uh, you know, e-books. You know, we'll go, okay, well, we'll turn you off in search. Uh, certainly, we saw that when we, were, we had a distribution business for smaller publishers. They never actually did it to us because I think we were a little too big. And, you know, we'd had some previous brushes where they'd gotten a lot of negative publicity, like back on the when I did the one-click patent protest in 2000. But for some of the smaller companies, they was literally pay us co-op fees you know, i.e., you know, co-op advertising, i.e., you know, this is yeah. before they developed their current advertising business, which is the algorithmic advertising business that everybody just has to be part of. And they literally would like, you know, advertise or we'll turn you off in search. 
So it was extortion, really. And, and, and of course, yeah. now they developed the advertising business as something much more intrinsic. You know, it's not like individual cases of we're going to we're going to shake you down. It's systematic shaking everybody down. I think about this when I, I uh, when I was first showing uh, this collective intelligence idea back in 2003, 2004, you know, when I was first coming up with the idea of Web 2.0, I used to show Amazon versus Barnes and Noble. And the example I always used was search for a book on JavaScript. And what always came up on Amazon was our book, JavaScript, The Definitive Guide, which yeah. uh, at the time and still is regarded as the best uh, you know, canonical book on JavaScript. Uh, you know, Barnes & Noble was featuring its own products, you know, so, you know, some JavaScript book that they'd published themselves or <laughs> books that people had paid them to feature, right? right? Right. And I said, look, and this is the winning formula. This is this is how Amazon wins. They show you what the world actually thinks is best. Uh, most yeah. traffic, most people pointing to it. Well, today it's interesting because you can still do that search on Amazon for JavaScript. And JavaScript, the definitive guide is still 15 years later, uh, the first organic result. And it's down in the lower right corner. The top of the thing is the paid O'Reilly Center, which you kind of have to do now, right? And they, yeah. they kind of pop that up. But, you know, it's like that's a rent, right? You know, it, we used mm. to just get that as part of the deal because everybody said this is the best book when you search. Now it's basically so here's this ad and then there's a bunch of ads for other books. And there's only that one organic result now on that as a result of that search, at least last time I looked may not always right. be the same and it may not be the same for every user. So I can't guarantee you that. But yeah, Amazon has become Barnes and Noble, basically. And, and, and the problem is that, of course, they're so much more dominant and people go, well, everybody's always had their house products, for example. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, well, the, a lot of people make the argument of like, you know, the old department stores, whether it's Sears or Macy's or JCPenney, whatever. They knew what was selling and be like, oh, these Calvin Klein jeans are selling. We'll make a knockoff of our own brand and have them right there and have them at half the price. Right. And I think that you can make a case for why you think that's a good thing. But what, what I think you do have to recognize is that there's something uniquely different about a Walmart or a Macy's or, a, you know, I mean, any kind of department store is that, that when you walked into the department store, they certainly could feature their stuff. 
but they couldn't only feature their stuff. You know, like Barnes & Noble would have the books that people paid for to have on an end cap or on a table down front. But effectively, Amazon, they've got here, they've got 3 billion SKUs worldwide, 600 million in the U.S. But what you see in the Amazon store is a very small selection that they show you when you search. Yeah, maybe you browse, maybe they feature a little bit of stuff, but I would bet that most things are the result of search. And, you know, you search for a book or a category and they basically show you five or 10 things. So effectively, Mm. they're a store of five or 10 things where one maybe is what the market would choose and nine are, you know, Somebody had to pay Amazon to put them up front. And again, maybe that's a legitimate business model, but let's recognize it and let's recognize it as, well, I guess there's two things. I mean, one is the case I've always made. I'm, I'm not really a, hey, the government ought to inv- intervene guy. I'll leave that right. to people like Tim Wu. I've been trying to address the companies like Google and Amazon and say, this is not in your best interest this is is kind of what's going to bite you in the end. And it's going to bite them partly through regulation, but it's going to bite them just because it's just no longer the best user experience. But anyway, let me jump over to Facebook and this sort of question of incentives, because this is a very different kind of algorithmic rent. And I have not, you know, entirely kind of thought this through even as far as I've thought the uh, Google and Amazon examples. Mm. But if you look at, think about political speech on Facebook, you know, and kind of going back to that uh, example of where they were told, you know, it's horrible breach of ethics to show people things that will make them happy. And yet there's been a whole lot of people and there were recent stories just uh, in the lead up to the election. There was a battle between Facebook, you know, employees and top management about whether they should have that. This is truthier. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, this is truer. Have some weight in their algorithm of what they showed people, and they decided it didn't make them as much money, and so they decided not to do it. You know, so that made it pretty damn explicit that effectively they are making choices that are bad for their users in order to you know improve their bottom line. Knowingly. And and you kind of go, well, isn't that a kind of rent? And again, this is where I think that the question of rents is, I think, a really useful lens because antitrust is like this giant hammer. Yes. You know, we're going to break you up or, you know, chisel you apart. And the question of rents, uh, again, I don't really know. And Mariana might have a lot more to say about this. You know, I'm not sure we have like a set of policy prescriptions for how you deal with them. Is it more about just saying, look, this is what it is? That's right. That's where we're at the stage right now, which is understanding that an economy that's rife with rents is a less efficient economy. And we believe as we are formulating economic policy that we're trying to make the economy work better. Therefore, if we can see clearly that, you know, rent seeking behavior, which is allowed in all of these ways. And again, Mariana has been looking at it in the context of pharma, finance and you know, industries like that. And then as we started talking about this, uh, what I started calling algorithmic rents, you know, oh, let's let's kind of try to include this in this broader survey of rent seeking behavior in the economy. So this project that we're doing funded by Omidyar is really kind of, a, it's almost like a catalog of rent seeking across many industries. Well, that's what's, and I was going to ask you, and this is kind of an aside, but maybe it's actually not, is if you frame it that way and say, let's call them the big four, Amazon, we, you haven't really spoken about Apple, but I mean, the, them paying $12 billion a year to make sure that they have pride of place 
or Google paying them. And then Apple and the way it runs its app store and all the accusations about how they are basically being a very bad landlord to all these app developers. And I haven't really dug into that uh, as much as I've yeah. dug into Amazon and, and Google. But I, I think it's quite, and again, part of what we're looking to do in the project is to work with the people. You know, there's all these consultants like SEO consultants for Google or uh, e-commerce consultants or app store consultants who actually have, have tracked this uh, stuff for a long time. And it's really trying to put that together with some financial analysis and collect data on on those things. But that's what I was going to ask you is that you're obviously very good at coming up with a term that just kind of sticks. And it makes people, you hear it and you're like, ah. And if you paint these big four companies as bad landlords that are extracting rent from all of us, that feels like a potentially quite useful way to frame this debate around how do we regulate these companies? How do we kind of rebalance this? I mean, how important is it is basically the marketing or the framing of a problem and what that leads to in terms of enforcement or changes? Well, it's an interesting question because, of course, the very first thing that I think, you know, you would do in terms of enforcement is you would basically say, and this is pretty clear with you know, Google, very analogous to what happened with Microsoft. You know, like, okay, Excel versus Lotus is Google Travel versus TripAdvisor and Yelp, yeah. right? You know, it's just like, hey, somebody had a product that we were carrying on our platform. Uh, we privileged our product. You know, we didn't have to play by the same rules. Excel was a better product, but they also had to go the extra mile and cheat on top of it. They could have won fair and square. <laughs> but, but, but they kind of went a little too far. And I think the same thing is true. Maybe Google could have won fair and square, but they didn't play fair and square. They basically pinned their product to the top of the results, pushed the people who basically built the category off the page. So presumably after you kind of, which doesn't sound like a small project, kind of in a way quantify what these, you know, the kind of, let's call them the, the, the landlords of the internet. Yeah the rents they're extracting, presumably then you move to the stage of, all right, what should tenants' rights be? You know, whether those be suppliers or us as users. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. One, the thing I've set out originally to establish was that, you know, again, using this phrasing, who gets what and why, the changing ratio of benefit, you know, between the suppliers, the users, and the platform, just measuring that, and getting a, a, a kind of a history of that as a tool of antitrust. Uh, it's a kind of like a health gauge for a marketplace. And like if I could have a remedy, one of the first things would be consistent reporting on that. You know, that, I remember a couple of years ago, uh, Jeff's uh, letter, you know, our third party marketplace is kicking our first party butt. You may remember that yeah, letter. Yeah. And you go, yeah, but, but all they're talking about is, is gross merchandise volume. Well, it's the same thing with the Apple saying and in their recent kind of they commissioned a report recently as the kind of heat was increasing around how they run the App Store. Being like, hey, the App Store has facilitated over $500 billion worth of commerce in the last year. Which for me is, I mean, that sounds like an impressive number, but that doesn't tell me anything about... No, it doesn't tell you anything. And, and you know, no. the, the fact is, what kind of disclosure should be required? You know, uh, let me go back to Amazon. You know, they've got now this 
10, $12 billion advertising market, you know, like, and they show, okay, here are our fees to suppliers. And the ad that advertising is not shown as a fee to suppliers. You know, if you say, well, what's the take that Amazon gets? Uh, what's the take that the supplier gets? If you layer on the advertising, you know, hey, it's clearly a very big number, you know, relative to Amazon's profits. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not as big a number relative to the, the GMV, but it's not clear, you know. And so I, I think that there's some ways that regulators could require a kind of transparency. Yeah. And theoretically, I mean, you could... Not that they would accept this argument, but you could make the argument to the big, the big platform, the big landlords. The better people understand these markets, the less onerous the regulation potentially, because the worst kind of regulation is ill-informed regulation. I totally agree with that. That's that's absolutely right. But also, even even for the companies themselves, understanding the long-term impact on their supplier base. You know, kind of going back to my company. You know, we sit here and we go, okay. Uh, you know, we want our suppliers to keep producing this content for us. We're a content supplier as well. And, we, and mm. we're very mindful of competing with our marketplace because guess what? If we pulled a, a Microsoft or a Google or an Amazon on them, they're going to go away. And yeah. uh, maybe they're going to go to a competitor or maybe they're just going to abandon the market. It's interesting. A lot of our product innovations have come not from trying to get benefit to users, but to get benefit to suppliers. You know, like we introduced this live online training and it was like because authors weren't making as much money from books anymore. You know, so we said, well, what else can we do to make them money so they keep producing useful content? And that's a really healthy dynamic. And again, for me, I think part of it is like if we can understand these marketplaces better and get better at, you know, I'm a believer in free markets. I'm a believer in, you know, creating the right incentives for people to do the right thing. And I think that there's this great quote from uh, Paul Cohen, who was the DARPA program manager for AI. He's now a CMU professor, uh, not CMU, uh, Pitt. He's at Pitt. Uh, he, he, uh, he said that the opportunity of AI is to help humans model and manage complex interacting systems. And I'm fascinated by you know, these platforms as laboratories for free market economics. And I was so excited about them for so long. And then you see them start to go awry. You know, I go, they're yeah. going backwards. You know, like I'm kind of like going, this is an opportunity to, to figure out how to make truly efficient markets that work better than old markets. And it just feels like they've got to that point, which is almost, in a way, it feels almost inevitability. A certain size, you just kind of, as you say, companies almost can't help themselves. Like, oh, I can get more of this pie. They have yeah. to keep growing. That's and again, that's where I talk in my book about you know the master algorithm of our economy. You know, the this is that we have built the rogue AI, and it's it's our financial markets. It basically says it's optimized for corporate profits. They must keep growing. You know, it's the paperclip maximizer. Uh, you know, uh, right there. You know, it's it's the corporate profit maximizer. Humans are a cost to be eliminated. And it's it's got all the characteristics. And so, um, how long before you think you'll be able to like? produce something for the world to see on this algorithmic rent. Uh, we'll probably be about a year before we get a bunch of stuff together. And there's just, it's you, a researcher, Mariana. Yeah. And a couple of other people at IAPP. And a lot of what we're really trying to do is, is we're trying to generalize. I mean, you know, my goal at least is to, you know, in this next year is to identify a bunch of data sources that are, non-traditional data sources, you know, like I said, I found this search engine consultants, you know, for yeah. Google, 
you know, I know that there are people who track the app stores. I just haven't put them together. And then you kind of go, okay, there's a whole bunch of data in the public filings of these companies. Sometimes it's pretty clear uh, you can make a case. There's even, uh, I think, an opportunity to make the case sometimes in a way that's maybe not even correct, but you can kind of say, look, you know, this is kind of what I've done with Google. I'm, I'm saying, here's the conclusion I've come to. Here's what I'm, what I'm saying. So tell me why I'm wrong, because this is yeah. what I'm going to publish, you know? And then they go, oh, you know, and, and, you know, and I think, you know, that kind of stuff starts to add up, you know, again, it really is research. I want to understand how Alibaba manages their marketplace in ways that are different from the way that Amazon yeah. manages their marketplace. And if I get it right, and I've identified some things that are useful, Amazon will go, oh, maybe we should do it differently. Or Alibaba will say, oh, maybe we should do it differently. And unfortunately, maybe they'll go, oh, yeah, we could extract more rents. (laughs) And and hopefully (laughs) not. And just before I let you go, you've been obviously coming up with lots of these ideas for decades. And you mentioned earlier how you were so excited about these big platforms for a long time. Where we are now, is that at all depressing or surprising? It is sort of depressing because I was optimistic. You know, I think I think of both Amazon and Google as fundamentally good companies. Even Facebook, they had certain ideals and you watch mm-hmm. them become corrupted. And that's painful. That's really painful. I still think that there's an opportunity for people to go, Oh, wait, we got that wrong. And, you know, I, the thing that gives me hope is Microsoft. It was the uh, evil empire back in the yeah, day. Yeah, it was the evil empire back in the day. And I, I'm not saying that their business practices are perfect today. But if you look at, you know, I, I did that interview with Satya back when he did, uh, when Hit Refresh came out. And he kind of had this great thing. He said, we went back to Microsoft's origin story, which was, you know, our job was to make other people successful. And part of their, you know, their refresh was kind of going back to that. And I kind of hope to see, you know, Amazon and Google go back to that. You know, that they, their job is literally to make other people successful. Right. And I think in the case of Amazon, I think they, maybe both companies, they still believe it. They just need to have their noses rubbed in the ways that they're not doing that anymore. And, and it's really hard to know whether they are head in the sand or in denial. I, I had a, a conversation with Google's chief revenue officer, and I said, you, you do know that half of all Google searches are, are what they now call no-click searches. Yeah, he's like, where did you hear that? You know, and I'm like, it's all over, you know, the SEO literature, everybody writes about it. You, are you seriously that you, telling me that you never heard that? And I, and I look at the, the, you know, the Congressional Committee recommendations on, on, you know, antitrust and Google, and they have been informed by some of this discussion. You know, and I think so there was some pretty smart thinking there, you know, where, where I, I do think that we get to better results if we actually know more yeah. and we develop kind of a theory of what kind of information we need to, to determine when companies are going astray and when they're damaging. You know, again, you know, because right now it's sort of typically uh, sort of anecdotal as in, you know, Yelp, you know, kind of versus Google and Yelp has sort of got dirty hands themselves and it becomes a he said, said, she said, and, you know, you, you know, whereas if you can kind of document it at a much broader scale, it's hard to argue against. Yeah. You know, and again, so like, can we get in there to the point by getting data from a bunch of, you know, my guess is there's somewhere out there that there are people who are aggregating a lot of information from Amazon sellers you know, and they'll have history of this is what the fees used to be and this is what they are today, you know, all in. 
and you can kind of you know get enough of a sample to establish a you know a pattern yeah. and then you correlate that with Amazon's financials and you go okay look here's this trend line here's this trend line presumably you know if this uh, carries over uh, you can kind of see that this is a transfer of value from suppliers to Amazon. Um, I struggle a little bit with the idea of remedies in the sense that I am kind of somebody who believes that people ultimately should understand that it's in our self-interest to be fair. Mm. You know, any company, it's in your self-interest, long-term self-interest to be fair. You know, it's kind of like almost like I believe uh, that people just don't get it, you know, and maybe I'm wrong in that. <laughs> maybe they do get it and they're just uh, willing, you know, they're able to do it anyway. Yeah. Well, there is certainly, there is certainly, as you're well aware, there's been a real turn against these companies and there is no more benefit of the doubt given. It's become quite poisonous. Like people just assume the worst, like these are just rapacious capitalists who are out to screw us and to, you know, even if it means the fabric of society disintegrates, if it means one more dollar to their bottom line, they will do it. And so it's, a, it's actually a very dangerous place for the companies and for regulation and just to see where this goes because it's just become the whole tenor of the discussion has become quite toxic. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it is a toxic discussion. And, and, uh, and unfortunately, some of these things are one-way doors, you know, to use Jeff Bezos' term. You know, when they launched that advertising business, I don't think that they, or maybe they did. Maybe they said, hey, it's worth it, you know, in the, in the end, and we don't care. But it's fundamentally corrosive of, of Amazon's original value proposition of being the most customer-centric company in the world. You know, it's like, no, yeah. you're not. You're basically, when you basically say, we're going to show you the products that people paid to put in front of you, that is not uh, being customer-centric. But now it's it's such a big part of Amazon's profit. It was one of those one-way doors. And I don't think they can go back until they hit some kind of wall where they start losing customers uh, because of it. Well, it sounds like you've got a lot of work to do. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. And I, 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 I'm not <laughs> expecting to, to kind of get to the end or the bottom of it, particularly since it's, it's not a full-time job for me. I think, <laughs> I think you will, it will be successful if, you know, in a year from now or two years from now, people algorithmic rent is one of those things that people just talk about. Yeah, th that's certainly one part of it. And I think it'll also be when people like Tim Wu or David Cicilline are kind of going, oh, yeah, look, here's this great database that correlates, uh, you know, that shows us it was always there, but they, was, they had no access to it. It wasn't in their, in their can that, oh, yeah, you can see it, here's 10 years of, of Amazon's increasing tax on their suppliers. You know, again, maybe it will, I'll find when we put that data together that I'm wrong about that. And Amazon mm. hasn't actually extracted more and more from their suppliers, in which case I'll be like, boy, Jeff. And then you would think Amazon would then be presenting that data to say, look, yeah. you know, we've actually reinforced our story about how much we're creating value for our suppliers. You know, I, I'm pretty convinced that Google ha has been playing foul. I don't yeah. have enough information to know that Amazon... I mean, it's stuff that I, d I don't like, but I'm not sure that it's in the same category uh, of like, we're directly gonna, you know, that's a nice market you have. We're gonna take it. Thank you. <laughs> well, uh, we'll definitely have you back on when, uh, you know, for showtime and all that stuff, perhaps before. But in the meantime, I wish you luck. Thank Good you. Good job. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank Tim for taking the time. 
to chat through all of that. I just think it's a really interesting way to kind of reorient your thinking around the internet, how it operates, who has the power, you know, who's doing well, who's getting screwed, etc. And of course, the big question, which we talked about is, you know, okay, then what? But anyhow, I hope you guys enjoyed it. I also wanted to say thank you again for giving me all those ratings and reviews. We're up to like 550 in the US and UK Apple Store, which is uh, pretty awesome. Five stars, most vast majority, which is also great. So if you haven't done that, please take a moment to do that. It does help other people find the show. I will be writing about one of these landlords in this weekend's paper, Amazon. So do check that out at thetimes.co.uk. And if you have any other questions, concerns, glowing reviews, or scathing criticism, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson or on email at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. That is all for me this week. Hope you guys stay safe and stay sane. Bye-bye. This podcast was brought to you thanks to the support of readers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, Calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.